This is the Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Lindsay lesher Shoot. On October 8th, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a stunning report. They found that if greenhouse gas emissions continue at their current rate, we will see major climate impacts, food shortages, extreme weather, coastal flooding, all by the year 2040. This is a lot earlier than predicted in other reports and is in many of our lifetimes. The report called on governments to transform the world economy and quickly. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Howden. Mark is the director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University and vice chair on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, part of the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program. We talk about the report's findings, the politicalization of climate change in the U.S., and how farmers need to adapt to a new reality. Hi, I'm Hannah Bernhardt, livestock farmer at Medicine Creek Farm in Minnesota. I've been a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition since 2011 because I believe young farmers' voices in Washington are essential to changing our broken food system. For $35 a year, you can join too. In addition to being a part of a bright and just future for agriculture, You'll also get discounts like 25% off Farm to Feet's American-made wool socks and 10% off at Premier One, a discount that has saved me hundreds of dollars on the best quality electronet fencing and solar chargers. To join, go to youngfarmers.org. Sure. Um, My name is Professor Mark Howden. I'm the Director of the Climate Change Institute at ANU, uh, which is the Australian National University, and I'm also a Vice Chair on the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What is the Intergovernmental Panel on on Climate Change? Well, as the name indicates, it actually is a governmental organisation, so it's owned by the governments, but not by the scientists. Uh, However, both parties actually think that they own the organisation, which is one of the intriguing things about the whole thing. But um, it was set up in 1988. Uh, um, It's effectively a UN organisation, and it's been running continuously since then. It's the single largest science policy experiment in history, uh, and I think it's an extremely successful one. And in 1988, when the IPCC was set up, what was what was the purpose of the organization there i mean there was evidence at that point that that the climate was changing um but the understanding certainly has has changed between now and, and now and then yeah the, when it was set up there was rather than evidence that the climate was changing i think the the main driver was evidence that carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were increasing. So it was actually much more forward-looking. Now, of course, that's still the case, um, but what we've seen in the intervening years is uh, accumulating evidence that the climate is changing and it's having impacts and um, people and institutions and nature are adapting to that. So this this most recent report, um, why was that report commissioned uh, to look at this uh, 1.5 degrees of warming um, as opposed to two. Can can you give a bit of history and context to um, why this was released? 
Sure. This was um, essentially an outcome of the Paris Agreement. And so in the Paris Agreement, governments, I think, went into that agreement generally saying, uh, let's set a target for two degrees Celsius and or below two degrees Celsius. And that was because the science community taking its cue from governments to some extent, had actually focused many of the impact studies on two degrees. Um, so when those negotiations happened, uh, due in part to the activities of the small island states, who rightly were concerned at the consequences of two degrees, particularly in terms of sea level rise, um, they said let's aim for 1.5 or at least have an aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees. And of course, there wasn't much evidence there to support that goal in the sense of, you know, can we get to 1.5 degrees in terms of keeping our emissions down? Um, and then uh, what are the impacts of 1.5 degrees versus 2 versus 3 or 4 degrees? And, and so effectively, that policy decision of um, Paris Agreement, the two temperature targets, 2 degrees um, or well below 2 degrees, and then um, an aspirational target of 1.5 degrees weren't are uh, effectively based on an evidence uh, set from the science community. So uh, what they then asked was, um, hey, scientists, please tell us, uh, you know, what are the pathways to 1.5 degrees and what are the benefits from staying at 1.5 versus 2? And so the science community had to effectively generate that whole set of literature specifically for that um, special report that just came out. And in Paris, the the new agreement that was set was two was two degrees correct yeah so the the formal paris agreement is well below two degrees that's the main target yeah. two degrees sort of being the outside um that's right. warming target i see and so what were the f the findings of of this report in a sense, the the main findings are that we are we are racing towards um, the one point five degree target. You know, incredibly quickly. We've at the current rate of greenhouse gas emissions, we've only got ten to fourteen years before we've used up all of what we call our carbon budget, all of the carbon dioxide emissions we can emit, but still stay below one point five degrees. So, um, you know. In, in a economic sense, you know, the, the speed of a turnaround to, to go from, uh, you know, where we are now in terms of emissions down to effectively zero after 14 years um, is, is, is massive. Um, one of the key messages, there's an urgency uh, in terms of action if we are to keep temperatures down to 1.5 or, or even to 2 degrees. Um, there was also messages saying if we took action now, um, we can have, in, in a sense, a, a longer, slower glide path um, down to net zero emissions where we need to be in several decades um, than if we keep on emitting at the current rate. So the more we emit now, the faster and harder our decline in emissions has to be. Uh, and, and acting early gives you much better outcomes in terms of the environment as well as economically. Um, the other surprises, I think, were the scale of differences between 1.5 degrees impacts and 2 degrees impacts. And what it turns out is that there's actually quite a difference in many different ways between uh, impacts at 1.5 and impacts at 2. So, 
For example, coral reefs are seriously damaged at 1.5, but they're almost totally extinct at 2. Um, drought conditions and fire conditions across the globe um, are seriously increased in terms of risk at 2 degrees. Uh, water shortages um, effectively double uh, for exposed populations at 2 degrees versus 1.5. Um, biodiversity risks are massively higher at 2 degrees than at 1.5, and, and the list goes on. When you're saying 1.5 degrees, how... How do you describe um, that number in, in layman's terms? What is 1.5 degrees? Okay, it's a, what, it's a good what, question, what does, what, does that, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it's 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial baseline is how it's um, uh, defined in the Paris Agreement. And so we have, uh, you know, measurements of different types going back um, some hundreds of years, 150 years, uh, and that allows us to say with some degree of certainty what the temperature was between 1850 and 1900, which is what we call the pre-industrial baseline. The 1.5 or 2 is the temperature above pre-industrial. And this is a global average temperature? That's, that's a global average temperature. But 1.5 doesn't or two degrees doesn't sound very much on a day-to-day basis, but in a in a global temperature sense, two degrees is huge. So, so for example, the difference between our historical temperatures and the temperature at the last ice age is about five degrees. So, the you know ice age which had whole of North America covered with ice and glaciers and stuff, um, well, as in Canada and the northern parts of the U.S., um, uh, was only five degrees Celsius colder than our historical temperatures. So so what doesn't it doesn't sound very much, but in fact it makes a huge difference at a global scale. And and we're we're already at one degree higher That's than right. pre industrial levels. So this is 0.5 degrees. 0.5 degrees more. That's right. What what that report also showed was was very clearly um, that humans are the, by far the big cause of any climate changes we're seeing. Uh, and in fact, I did a study a couple of years ago which showed there's less than a one in a hundred thousand chance um, that the temperature increases we're seeing aren't due to human influence. Yes, well, that's a that's a message that, that um, is difficult to, to get through, unfortunately, to, to some of our lawmakers here here in the U.S., the understanding of human influence and climate change globally, clearly, it, it seems in the international community, there's there's broad acceptance of this. Is there a sense of what percent of the world's population understands the impact that they're having on on the environment and um, climate change? Oh yeah, there's lots of studies on that, and um, and broadly, what those studies show is that the the U.S. is a a gross outlier compared with you know all equivalent nations in the sense of you know the G20 and OECD countries, but uh, but the U.S. has a, a, a is a distinct outlier on that in terms of polarization of perspectives and uh, you know and the politicization, so. Um, uh, so, so not everywhere has the same um, issues, and I, I can go and talk to a farmer in Sri Lanka or in Kenya, and they acknowledge climate's changing. I can go and talk to a business person in India, and they'll say the climate's changing. You know. So, specific to food and agriculture, which is of course um, of great interest to our listenership and our and our membership uh, of young farmers. Tell me about. Uh, the impacts uh, for for agriculture first at at 1.5 degrees warming. Um, what what were the findings of the special report? The the implications are very different 
in different places. So, um, so very different issues depending on where you are and what you do. So different implications for crop uh, farmers versus graziers and etc. So there's you know different nuances depending on on your activity. Uh, but broadly, uh, the the picture is that in the tropics and the equatorial regions, um, uh, that there's prospects for much higher rainfall in most cases. Uh, but these are in many situations uh, environments where there's plenty of rain anyway. So in fact, more rain just actually causes problems. Uh, as you move into the subtropics, um, the rainfall situation tends to be sometimes about even. So this is sort of southern Texas type latitudes, Florida type latitudes but you're still getting a lot more temperature increase and so so the prospects are particularly for periodic droughts to increase significantly um, again heat stress in livestock um, and uh, an, an increased risk for um, you know crop activities so depending on where you are in a latitudinal sense you know going from the equator to the arctic you can get very different issues um, and very different impacts and and hence very different responses in terms of climate change and what are some of the presumed impacts um, for food security, global food security, with with these changes? Um, the picture is, uh, for many countries which already have food issues, those are going to get worse. Um, but for those countries like your country and our country, um, which generally have food surpluses, um, it's actually probably going to get better. So inequality in terms of food distribution versus food consumption is likely to increase over time. And on average, uh, prices are going to be higher for most uh, foodstuffs than they have been historically, you know, allowing for population growth and economic growth, etc. So with and without climate change, your prices tend to be higher. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing because, um, you know, farmers the world over actually are, are confronted with issues of low price and many cases, you know, people are operating close at the margins. Um, so higher prices are, are good, um, but the volatility that comes with that is a bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly the the volatility of a given season, um, it, that is something that I hear from farmers um, that they perceive as an increasing um, with whether that's a severe storm, certainly our Farmers in the Southwest are are dealing with extreme drought, but it's you know I think everyone is hesitant <laughs> to say is this is this it right is it is this climate change here um, this storm? But certainly it seems extreme like extreme storms are something that we are seeing in in on the increase uh, in the U.S. is is that something that um, the climate models are pointing to as as one of the uh, expected impacts absolutely and they've been saying that for decades now and so um so so one of the key messages is uh um, climate variability is likely to increase um the impacts of that when you translate it through an agricultural system so through a, a cropping system or a grazing system get magnified so um, so the you know the bad end of the spectrum you know tends to get worse and the and the good end of the spectrum or you know the, say the dry end you're getting more dry conditions and more wet conditions at the same time so your variability increases uh, and we're seeing that in many cases around the world already um, so that increase in variability and increase in risk is a is a big part of the how climate change is likely to play out 
What are some of the most important adaptation techniques uh, to keep our farmers farmers going in the face of climate change? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So the answer is it depends on, on what farmers' goals are. But broadly, um, you can characterise adaptation options across a spectrum from what we call incremental changes, which are just changes to the existing system, like tweaking the existing system, through to transformational changes, which are really major changes in your operation, so fundamental changes in, in what you farm for, like you know, going from a grain farmer to a livestock farmer or from a, you know, a grain farmer to an energy, energy farmer, you know, so solar panels and... and, and you know, wind towers on your farm. And uh, many of the incremental options are ones which we already know well, um, things like zero tillage in cropping systems. Uh, if you're not taking a change on board, um, you're probably foregoing profits and incurring unnecessary risk. One of the things that was interesting to me in this report is sort of this tension between the new technology we need and the new genetic engineering, perhaps even um, when it comes to seed varieties and the like, um, and also the indigenous knowledge um, that is, is critical for adaptation. How do those two things come together, right, in this modern world? There's all these lessons that we should have learned like a thousand years ago, yet there are new things like CRISPR that are like at the frontier of, you know, what might be possible or or necessary in a dramatically different climate. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, look, again, it's very different depend on your value systems and where you live. So genetic modification uh, seems to be quite, you know, par for the course in, in places like the US and a few others. Uh, but if you go to Europe, it's, it's a no-no. It strikes me that we have a lot of room to move uh, using new technologies and it doesn't have to be, you know, the full GM, you know, so there's lots of rapid breeding technologies we can use these days, um, uh, which don't, you know, go into that contested space. Um, uh, and and we should be using those where we can. So, for example, in the US, you've got um, an agriculture scientist called uh, Lou Ziska, uh, who works in USDA, and he's uh, worked for a long time on uh, um, the effect of carbon dioxide on, on cropping systems, particularly. And and his analysis is that uh, the crops that we've been developing across the globe uh, have not been uh, um, optimized to take advantage of the free ride um, that increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere provides crops and so so we haven't been breeding for increased carbon dioxide and if we had been breeding for that uh, we'd probably be five or eight percent better in terms of yield. Um, uh, in terms of indigenous knowledge that's a really interesting space and you get very different views uh, depending on different people. Um, clearly in many circumstances um, indigenous people particularly through oral histories uh, have a much longer period of, in a sense, observation of climate variability and they've probably been exposed to the f much more the full range of possible climate variations um, that occur in any given place. Uh, and that gives a perspective on climate variation which our recorded history, you know, which goes max back to about 150 years, just doesn't have. So so I think when we, when we do engage... Um, in a sense, conventional science with uh, traditional knowledge and science related to traditional knowledge, we, we need to think 
uh, critically about really thinking hard about what the value proposition is and what the what the underlying values and goals are, which which are supported by those different types of knowledge. In in consideration of adaptation, there were a couple of things that also stood out to me, and and one is discussion of irrigation, and the report talks about the need for using you know drip irrigation and lining ditches and that type of thing um, to uh, promote uh, irrigation efficiency, but then it also says it could be maladaptive in the long term because I guess a system is, is there's a lot of investment in, in that given system and then it might be hard to, to change uh, in the future. I wonder if you could, you could speak to that. Like how, it's like we need these, we need these big infrastructure shifts. They are just required and, and necessary in, in many places, but for farming, it seems like we perhaps need something that's more agile to cope with, with what's to come. Yeah, no, it's again, really great point. So if we look across that spectrum from incremental to transformational, um, sitting somewhere in the middle often is, um, you know, adoption of irrigation or partial irrigation in farms. So, you know, and I think what we'll see in the future is a lot more, um, as you say, flexibility. But your point about um, sometimes that increases your sensitivity or susceptibility to climate variation is, is, is really well made. So if we look at our rice-based industry, which um, so we grow rice in our semi-arid areas, you know, similar to, say, Arizona, I guess, um, and... Uh, and that relies on large-scale, um, you know, dam systems and irrigation delivery systems, and and the whole point of having irrigated rice in semi-arid areas is that the irrigation systems and dams effectively reduce your risk. You know, on the surface, that's a great risk management, climate risk management proposition. You know, you you remove entirely your climate risk. But the problem then comes in if you get a really extensive drought, which simply wasn't planned for when people were designing those dam and irrigation systems. And all of a sudden, um, what was guaranteed heaps of water um, just disappears. And this happened for our rice industry in Australia, um, where historically it's always had 100% water allocation. And then along came the millennium drought around the turn of the century, uh, and our water allocation to rice disappeared, and the whole industry just collapsed. It just went from you know a huge amount of rice production to zero, effectively zero in you know just a couple of years, and and so the industry was left you know incredibly stranded um, by that because it was way outside any planning scenario, and and so in that sense we can become over reliant on big irrigation systems, and particularly where you're drawing on um, groundwater that's not rapidly replaced, you know where you've got fossil groundwater. So the way we've dealt with that in Australia is um, we've introduced uh, water pricing and water trading. So uh, so we price water, so people have to pay for water, so it's not a free good anymore, um, and we allow people to trade water and water licences either on a temporary basis or on a permanent basis. And what that does is it um, gets uh, placed at the point of highest value. So the people who are making the most dollars um, out of uh, any given megalitre of water 
um, or you call them acre feet um, of water, um, but you know any given amount of water, um, the water will end up um, at the person who's actually making the best use of that. And so economically, um, even though water may become more constrained, you can actually um, maintain or even increase your regional agricultural production. Uh, and that's what happened in the Millennium Drought, is that um, water allocations ended up um, the, at the highest value use. And the impacts of a massive drought actually were relatively limited economically across the region, but obviously very impactful on individual farmers. You know, I, I wonder, um, with so in, in the Southwest where... And, and Western United States overall, this this is a major topic of discussion is, you know, who who gets the water and it's allocated by by rights and, you know, uh, seniority, so to speak. I, ju- I would worry with a system based on pr- water pricing that you would have two potential uh, poor scenarios. One would be that cities would be able to outcompete a a farmer, or you would have, like, just within the agricultural industries, much more scaled um, operations that might not support other goals of a community uh, in one way or another, uh, being able to purchase more water than, like, a smaller-scale producer. Are there ways to manage both of of those issues within the Australian pricing system? Oh, yeah, of, of course. And so city users can pay a lot more for water than, uh, say, you know, an irrigated ryegrass pasture um, grower, you know, dairy farmer. And, um, and, and that's large, you know, it's 10 to 100 times more. And so, so you have, you know, disparate abilities to, to purchase water. And so, so it's relatively straightforward. Um, so, so in Australia, we have um, water which is uh, essentially allocated and purchased for environmental use. Um, and, and because it's a water market, uh, there is actually an, in, sort of an environmental purchaser, which is like a public um, entity. Uh, and that can buy water on the market. So if the, if the water is cheap on the market, it can buy water and store it in a dam so it can actually be released for environmental flows. So you can have market-based mechanisms operating within your cities, Um, and similarly within your agriculture, you can have uh, high-security users and medium-security users and low-security users. And so high-security water has a higher value, obviously, because you you can get access in dry times. So there's lots of very straightforward policy mechanisms to deal with some of those equity issues. It doesn't deal with all of them, um, so so you're talking about small farmer versus big farmer issues, and uh, and you may want to have if that's an important thing in the region, you might want to have additional layers of policy. Speaking of uh, <laughs> manageable from a, a policy perspective, uh, we the U.S. as you likely know, just in the the last uh, week, released a report on specific impacts of climate change here. Um, and President Trump says that he, quote, doesn't believe that report. So we have this unique situation of a president denying the research and reporting of his own administration. Um, do you find that your work and science is facing more adversity and political pushback than it has in the past. Uh, our, our, I, you, you mentioned earlier that the U.S. is an outlier uh, in terms of our acceptance of the human impacts of, of climate change. Um, 
but are are the trends that we're seeing here in the United States are they reflected elsewhere in 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 the polarization of of this issue? Yeah. So so I was actually on the federal advisory committee for the third uh, climate assessment in the US, and so I've I've got a history. Um, um, for me, the test of that report is not whether the White House likes it or not, um, but it's whether the public in the US, um, the industry sectors in the US, um, actually take on board the messages. And mm. and that's the test. It's not whether the White House likes it or not. In terms of public acceptance, uh, at the moment in Australia, we've got a strange situation where, where our government seems to be quite out of step with public uh, views on climate change. So. In Australia, between about 75% and 84% of the population, uh, when surveyed, say they want more action on climate change, uh, that the vast majority of Australians uh, see um, you know, climate change as a big uh, pressing issue, like immediate issue, and, uh, and they, they're looking to have both mitigation and adaptation activity ramped up and supported by the government. So I, I, would, I would actually think that um, you know, I'd be framing uh, this uh, this issue in in terms of uh, how we can actually engage with different users of climate information and people who are affected by climate, um, and how we can actually make their lives better, um, how we can make farmers more productive and more sustainable, and and how we can have trade systems that that actually result in more effective um, distribution of food across the globe, because we're going to need it if that disparity between the haves and the haves not increases rather than decreases because of climate change. So there's many dimensions of, of climate change, and I think we can if we want to, we can treat them in a very positive way. We can see this as an opportunity, a way to improve our practice, um, rather than seeing it as a doom and gloom, you know, fatalistic view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's certainly um, in the U.S. the the way forward for many farmers um, and getting the the agricultural community engaged in all of this is talking about the co-benefits, right? The benefit to soil carbon sequestration or soil health practices and kind of in in some cases leaving climate change um, or discussion of climate change sort of out of it. What are some of the most important uh, ways that individual farms can be part of uh, stemming climate change and uh, climate mitigation? Right. That's a, it's a, again, a good question. But before I do that, I, I just want to make one point is that when we think about co-benefits, um, one co-benefit that we've found in Australia of farmers taking on board climate change um, is a reduction in stress. <laughs> so I don't know. I I feel like well, this conversation kind of stresses me out. But tell tell me more. <laughs> so it's it's actually sort of really interesting. So if if you're a um, if you're a farmer and who for political slash ideological reasons um, you're in denial of climate change, but your climate is changing then your management practices will gradually get out of step with what they need to be. Uh, and so um, people probably internalise this. And so what we, when we actually have surveyed this, we've actually found that um, the farmers who take on board climate change, who acknowledge the climate is changing and start um, changing their management and their strategies accordingly, are much, much less um, stressed than those who actually don't. 
So those people are taking control of their lives, um, and because they're taking control of their lives, their risk level, as their stress levels go down. So one of the co-benefits of acknowledging that the climate is changing and changing our practice is actually lowering stress. So in terms of um, mitigation, uh, so it's emission reduction, um, farmers can do a fair bit, um, but they're by themselves not going to solve the problem. So the three big things um, that uh, farming broadly can do is um, firstly just keep on going down the pathway of improved efficiency um, by being efficient you can actually produce that with a much lower greenhouse gas footprint than if you're inefficient. May uh, I just ask a question about efficiency because that can mean a lot of different things. I mean of course there are <laughs> some systems are obviously inefficient but then there are some systems like a like confinement agriculture with a CAFO or whatnot as opposed to like a, a you know a rotational grazing system some might say the rotational grazing is efficient and some might say the confinement system is inefficient for totally different reasons. So I'm just wondering like what what is your meaning of efficiency? Yeah. So I well I mean you can you can deal with this in different ways. So so at a systems level you can say you know rotational versus confinement etc. But within say a confinement system or within say an existing agricultural system you can become more efficient. So uh, within a confinement system you can you know possibly find ways of of maintaining temperatures a desirable level with a lower greenhouse gas footprint. Um, so so you find ways of of you know fine tuning your production there. You know you can you can get the same amount of production or sometimes even more, but with much less input. So efficiency number one. Efficiency number one um, is is uh, an important one. Um, secondly, it's about uh, how how you can store soil carbon on your um, well store carbon on your lands, um, and that can be done through vegetation like um, sort of trees or shrubs. Um, typically, when we've gone from a, a native grassland and ploughed that up and put it under a crop, we lose up to half, maybe even sixty percent of soil carbon in the surface soil. Um, and that's a cumulatively huge amount of carbon that ends up in the atmosphere. But with various practices, we can actually restore some of that soil carbon. And uh, and you can do that, you know, you can argue that that's actually beneficial for the climate, and it, and it is in the sense of it draws down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But the main rationale for increasing soil carbon in most of our farming systems is that it makes them more sustainable, is that uh, soils with a higher carbon content tend to be more permeable so they absorb water better, they have a better water holding capacity, um, they have better nutrient um, delivery mechanisms and so the ecosystem service value of storing soil carbon is often about 10 times as much as the carbon carbon price value of soil carbon. Um, Then the third sort of um, approach or element that farm land can be used for is actually for uh, energy production. So thinking about um, integration of uh, you know wind farms um, with cropping lands or grazing lands, um, solar panels um, with grazing lands, storing carbon in trees as part of a bioenergy system, but also using that as part of an agroforestry system. So um, using it productively, and so um, starting to think about lands as a multifunction. Uh, um, resource rather than a single function resource which is to produce you know farm commodities so so those are the three big areas um, that we can do Mark, this has been uh, such an interesting conversation uh, th- thank you I know you are on on to your next um, thing and I I so appreciate your perspective on all the above.
Is there anything else that um, you you wanted to add? Uh, Any words of I, wisdom? I covered. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I, I mean, pro- probably probably my closing comment would be to the best of our ability to judge climate change is real, um, that it is happening, um, that it has really significant consequences, but those consequences differ from place to place. Um, there's lots and lots of options that we can put in place that deal with climate change, both um, reducing the net emissions, um, but also adapting to climate change. And mostly they make huge economic sense and they make sense in terms of sustainability and the type of place we... And I, and I think uh, we do have a responsibility to think long-term, um, but we need to integrate those decisions into all of the other factors which make our current decisions, you know, the decision you make today and tomorrow. Um, so rather than excluding climate change or making decisions only on climate change, it's starting to have climate change in the mix of all of those decisions. So it's just part of our decision-making process rather than being something special. Thanks, Mark, for getting on the phone from the other side of the world. For more information, check out today's show notes where we'll link you to the whole climate report as well as climate resources for farmers. If you haven't already, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. We love reviewers. Tell us what's on your mind. This podcast was recorded at Radio Kingston and was edited by Hannah Beal. Talk to you next week.